0: Welcome to this podcast from the October 24, 2011 meeting of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. This podcast is from the second session, a discussion with Mark Emmert, President of the National Collegiate Athletic Association. President Emmert provided a summary of key policy issues being considered by the NCAA's Division I Board of Directors and the values guiding those efforts. Knight Commission Co-Chair William Britt Kerwin, Chancellor of the University System of Maryland, provides an introduction to this session. The podcast lasts approximately one hour and six minutes. For more information on the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, please visit www.knightcommission.org. We want to get
1: uh, this session uh, started, and uh, Mark, let me just say, how much we appreciate uh, your uh, being with us today and uh, having, giving us a chance to have a, uh, a conversation with you. I think all of you know that uh, Mark is about to celebrate, uh, or maybe already has, his first anniversary. As, uh, three weeks into his second year, having had a very distinguished uh, career in higher education, um, leaving the rough-and-tumble life of a university president to a more serene, uh, lower-profile position with the uh, NCAA. But uh, Mark, of course, left uh, the university presidency of the University of Washington, his alma mater, and prior to that was chancellor of uh, of uh, at LSU. So we're very anxious to hear what you have to say today, Mark. Just by way of um, setting the context, uh, let me say that um, Mark uh, convened this past summer, uh, in August, a, a summit of uh, university presidents and and chancellors. Uh, and it was convened with a, a real sense of urgency. um to address uh, a number of troubling issues that have been raised by the Knight Commission, university presidents, the NCAA itself, the media, and and, and others. Uh, For those of us who uh, were at the summit, uh, I think we came away with two very strong impressions. Uh, The first was the very open, frank uh, dialogue that uh, Mark so ably led, um, and second, the, the sense of resolve uh, among the presidents there that major reform had to occur and had to occur on uh, an accelerated uh, time frame. So Mark, we, we want to hear your thoughts on uh, what's transpired since that summit, where we are with the reform, uh, reform agenda, and I just want to remind my Uh, colleagues that Mark is going to make comments for 15 or 20 minutes and then we're going to enter into a a, a conversation with him. So, Mark, the floor is yours and many thanks for being here.
2: Well, thank you very much, Brett, and thank you to all the members of the Commission for inviting me here today. It's good to see old friends and meet some new folks as well uh, to talk about issues that are of great importance, obviously, to all of us. Can I set that over there, please? Uh, The The the, um, role that I've taken on, as Britt mentioned, is uh, in many ways quite distinct from that of university president or academician. I spent 30 years of my life in uh, very traditional roles on campuses, but I I always like to remind people that I did not leave higher education when I moved to this new role. I just moved to a different part of higher education, and I have always approached the NCA and all things around intercollegiate athletics from that perspective, that, that intercollegiate athletics is a dimension of American higher education. It does not sit apart from it. It's not an ancillary function that uh, sits outside of universities, but it is, in fact, an integral piece of what we're all about in American higher education. And I carry that perspective into the current job that I now hold. And, in fact, I think that's why it's important for the NCAA to continue to have presidents as a former university presidents, as their, their presidents. But I also recognized um, even before I took the job and uh, certainly had confirmed for me as I moved into this new role, uh, the, the reality that while there are an enormous number of things going very, very well in intercollegiate athletics, there's also a number of great challenges. It is a frustration, I think, for everybody in higher education who pays attention to intercollegiate athletics, to see on a regular basis all of the very positive things that happen, the great impact it has on young men and young women, the ability that it provides them to participate in sports that they love, the development that comes from it, their capacity to grow and develop as individuals and as athletes and as students. And we know, and I'll talk a little bit later about the successes that we're having in terms of uh, academics as well among our athletes. But all of those really marvelous things. All of those marvelous things get washed over by the problems that are out there and hidden by the scandals of the day or the issue de jour that pops up. And the, the public at large is bombarded by all of that news. It is naturally enough what the media focuses on. Um, I, I, we had last week um, our Woman of the Year event, uh, an event where we bring in 30 young women from all three of our divisions who uh, who have been stellar athletes stellar students wonderful community servants in their communities and we and we select the winners of these awards in each of our categories and it's just an unbelievable event when you meet these young women you just you come away from that feeling like we all do on any campus event like this feeling so full of pride and then you immediately go out the door and you get hit with you know, whatever the scandal is that's erupted or the problem that's erupted. And so it was it was with that sense that this is an enterprise that is extraordinarily valuable to higher education and to American society, but at the same time has all of these great problems at it that I call together the the retreat of presidents that you referred to, Britt. And we, we assembled in Indianapolis a little over fifty or fifty-two or three Presidents that uh, that I invited, they they covered the gamut of Division One. They were all Division One presidents. I'd asked the divisions two and three uh, leaders to to join us as well, just to to be participants, and and then added to those presidents a handful of people from across the higher education landscape: faculty, athletic rep, commissioners, uh, athletic directors, a handful, but just a handful of those people, because what this was was a conversation among presidents. And that's what I wanted, and I wanted it to be an occasion where presidents could speak frankly, and and uh, and that we could reach some resolve over this two-day period. It was for me, and I've heard from many other presidents who were there, some of whom are here right now on the commission. It, it was not only just a really good conversation. It was it was for many of us, maybe most of us. One of the best conversations we've had on any subject, not athletics, it was a it was a very, very good focused discussion about the about the issues in front of us. And we got after those issues very directly. And the the resolve to address those issues was as great as I've ever seen. Uh, It was in many ways a very, very, very important set of meetings. We came away with. I guess three things that are of greatest importance. The first, Britt already mentioned, and that was that we need to act with some dispatch. We we, we know that the NCAA is, and, and any deliberative voluntary association has these elements, of course, but it is a very deliberative and occasionally ponderous uh, decision-making body that, has trouble acting as rapidly as the environment changes around it. And we all concluded that the normal course of business was not enough anymore, that we had to find ways to move much more rapidly, and we agreed to do that. In terms of the substance, uh, I would categorize it really in all of the issues we discussed falling into two two categories. The first broad category being uh, the need to make sure that student-athletes, are students who happen to be athletes, not the other way around. Uh, Obviously, one of the core elements of all of the work of the Knight Commission and that we all quickly agree to. But then you have to decide, well, okay, that's an easy and fun thing to say. What does that really mean? How do you convert that into meaningful language? Well, we started doing that, of course, a number of years ago, at least in part because of the strong urging of the Knight Commission, when we put in place... Around a decade ago, what's now referred to as the academic reform effort and created the APR and created the GSR and started creating benchmarks, holding institutions accountable. And that has had, I'm very pleased to report, some very significant effect. Indeed, tomorrow, I can't give you the numbers today, but tomorrow we will announce the newest round of GSR scores. And I dare say everyone in this room, the most skeptical among us all, uh, we'll be very, very pleased and, in fact, I hope proud with the results that you see. They show significant and, in some cases, even dramatic improvements in graduation rates of student-athletes, and that's going to be uh, a nice set of data to report to the world. But nonetheless, even despite those reforms of the, of the past and the success that they've had, we all agreed that we have to do much better in a number of specific categories. We still have some sports that lag sharply. We still have many institutions whose performance across teams and even across the whole institution aren't anywhere near what they need to be. And we have some categories of students in particular that have had the biggest problem, community college transfers, for example, being one of the most notable where we've had um, nowhere near the graduation rates that we wanted to see. So the group of presidents and I agreed quickly that we would do several things. Uh, First of all, we moved the APR requirements from 900, where they had been, to a 930. Why did we do that? Because that correlates to a 50% graduation rate. The original 900 target had been set with the intention of hitting the 50% graduation rate. It doesn't do it, it turns out. We're confident that a 930 will. So we moved the target up to that 50% graduation rate that we all think is a, is a bare minimum. We added, for several reasons that we can talk about, We added to this also a a new impetus for acting more quickly around that 9.30, and that is that we added for the first time ever an academic element to uh, eligibility for postseason play. If you're going to be able to participate in postseason play, you need to do more than just win games. You have to win in the classroom as well. So we said that we were going to set the 9.30 also, and the board voted on it the very next day, Uh, the 930 is a benchmark for for participation in uh, all postseason play. Now, what would that mean in reality? Well, if you look at our largest postseason event, that, of course, is the men's basketball tournament. This last year, seven of those teams would not have been allowed to participate in the tournament at all, including the national champions. It would have reallocated more than $2 million dollars, of revenue away from schools who failed to meet those academic eligibility requirements to institutions that did receive, that did achieve that level of academic success. Uh, Imagine for just a minute a coach whose team is competing extremely well, who has to walk into his or her president, who has to walk into his or her athletic director, who has to face his or her team, and say, I know you're playing very well, but we're not eligible this year because you didn't study enough. This is going to have a very, very significant impact on the way coaches recruit, on the emphasis they place on the success of their student-athletes, on the on the uh, entire mission of the athletic department in ways that's going to, I think, really shape a lot of behavior in constructive ways. The next piece that we agreed we needed to tackle, and so so that's been passed. We're going to put in the implementing language probably at the end of this week. We have another Division I board meeting. We'll probably put in all or most of the implementing language uh, at the end of this week. The the next piece that we wanted to deal with was the realities of of initial eligibility for our student-athletes, whether they're entering freshmen or whether they're transfer students. Uh, the concern that we have is that we are bringing in young men and women who are not prepared for collegiate-level um, education. And then we're laying on top of them the, the 20, 30, 40 hours of work that's required of, uh, of a student to be a serious athlete, and their probability of success is, uh, is limited, to say the least. And so we will be, again some of this occurring later this week and some of it occurring in January, implementing, and I'll be asking the, the Committee on Academic Performance to bring forward with, with direct proposals their meeting later this week also, to change our initial eligibility requirements. What you will see is an increase in the, the base grade point average from the 2.0 probably, please don't hold me to it because this hasn't been finalized yet, probably to a 23 and you will also see something that we we agreed, and all the data shows, is that we also need to push back into the high schools a requirement that young men and women take their courses in a in a more appro- academically appropriate sequence. We see far too many uh, summer miracles: uh, students who who uh, the summer between their junior and senior year, or even their senior year in college don't have the courses that they need, don't have anywhere near the core requirements that they need, and all of a sudden they show up with 16 hours of uh, coursework with straight A's that occurred in that summer uh, or that occurred in a relatively short period of time. Even if that's all on the up and up, it nonetheless is not an academically appropriate way to go through one's high school curriculum. So we're going to... We're going to require that students take courses stretched out throughout their high school years rather than just all at once and try and send the messages, not try, clearly send the message to youngsters that they need to get serious about their academics when they're a freshman in high school, when they're a sophomore in high school, not in their junior year or their senior year. They've got to take courses in a a respectable sequence that makes intellectual sense. Uh, We will also be bringing forward uh, to, from CAP and I'll, I'll be taking to the board a proposal probably at the January meeting could be as early as this week but at the January meeting certainly for a, a freshman academic red shirt model that will allow students to uh, enjoy the benefit of an athletic scholarship and come to an institution probably with the current levels of eligibility but not participate in competition. And until they spend a year of academic preparation, getting their grades up to where they need to be and then being allowed to compete, but not until then. So it will maintain access to institutions. It will maintain access to scholarship support, but not to competition until you've met that next level of eligibility. And then the other piece that we're going to be bringing forward, uh, some of it this week and, and the rest of it in January as well, I'll be uh, asking the the board to approve a change, a significant change, in the uh, eligibility uh, for 2-4 transfers, uh, a place where we've had some of our greatest challenges. Uh, The the grade point average will be raised there, again, probably to a 2-5, though that hasn't been settled on yet. Uh, it It will also restrict significantly actually I would use the word dramatically, the number of physical education requ- credits and non-major uh, credit, non-course credits that can be transferred in uh, and place significant greater uh, requirements on young men and women coming in from our community colleges. We're also working on the concept. It's still a concept right now and one that we have to work with our community college colleagues on further. Of creating a year of academic preparation for community college students. We know that the majority of students go to community colleges rather than directly to four year institutions who ought to be athletes because they have academic preparation issues. Uh, we need them to not find themselves in the same exact box in a community college that they would find in a university, that they're participating in sports, that they're, that they're playing and dedicating the same amount of time to athletics, but they're not they're not able to spend as much time on their studies as well. So the question is, can we allow them to go to a community college and spend a year there doing all their their necessary curricular work, and if they have remedial work that needs to be done, great, get it done. Community colleges are excellent at, the, at that. They're better at that than most universities are. Work with those young men and women, and then start their eligibility clerk clock later so that they don't have to worry about wasting a year's time getting their coursework done. Quite the contrary, they see that as an appropriate preparation for moving on to to, um, uh, to the um, university or college setting that they're going to move to. That whole package of changes, I think, is going to have a remarkably positive impact on making sure that student-athletes are much better prepared coming in and that they're being held ac- more accountable than ever before for academic success and that their coaches and their institution are being held accountable for their success as well. So I think we're going to see some very, very positive outcomes out of that. Uh, the presidents and I feel very positively about those changes. The second broad set of changes that, uh, that we're looking at, uh, I, I lump generally under conduct issues, the way we conduct our our games, and closely linked to that is the integrity of those games. Obviously, when we got together in August, and and the the mood would be no different today, uh, I and the university presidents were disgusted with much of what we had seen the preceding year. Uh, The the behavioral issues that we'd seen, the uh, lack of integrity and forthrightness that we'd seen, the scandals du jour that were going on, all of that, all of that was just uh, annoying in the extreme and eroding to everything that we all agreed in, agreed about and and care about. So the the issue then becomes one of, again, well, we we get that, what are you going to do about it? And how do you make substantive changes? Well, in the first areas, we, we recognize that A lot of the problems that we have are self-inflicted by our own rule structure. We have in place, and everyone who follows Division I athletics knows this, we have in place a set of rules that are, in many cases, focused on the wrong things. They focus on defining behaviors in painful, brutal detail. I won't bother you with some, but they're laughable detail. I mean, literally laughable detail. But yet they, they may or may not focus on the big integrity questions that we really care about, that really undermine what intercollegiate athletics is about and all the value that it has. So we are going through – in each of these cases, by the way, I'm sorry to, to digress for a minute. I assigned uh, working groups with presidents as chairs and co-chairs. Mike Adams, is in fact, is chair of one of them. and And then put on those working groups, assigned to them also – some faculty athletic reps, a student athlete, an athletic director, a conference commissioner, and a, or a senior associate commissioner, a variety of people who actually knew what was going on in their fields, but also gave them the, the responsibility to reach out to the collective, collection of the association and get information. And so we've had very good dialogue on these, and we're continuing to do so. But in the case of the group working on the, the, the rules committee, uh, they're taking an approach that's radically different. They're saying, look, what we want to do is focus on the outcomes and define the kinds of behaviors that we want to have here, not go in and immediately say, well, what size of envelope should we allow people to mail things to to prospective student-athletes? We have three pages on that, by the way. Uh, and, and, and we all know the bagel joke. You know, we, we define that you can give a recruit a snack but not a meal. Well, what's the difference? Well, a bagel is a snack unless you put cream cheese on it, and then it becomes a meal. And we have written rules that differentiate at that level of detail. Well, I don't know anyone that's deeply concerned right now with spread on bagels. I am concerned about people cheating and lying and engaging in academic fraud. So that group is going in and saying, what are the behavioral outcomes that we want, not the details of it. This is going to take a lot of courage It's going to take some creativity. It's going to take a little bit of time, but we are going to hear a report back from that committee before this academic year is over. They are going to be bringing forward at each of the meetings, including this week, uh, either resolutions or updates to the board and asking the board to vote on and endorse these approaches so that this becomes a one-way street, not easy to back up on, and we're not going to go in and try and pull, a, pull out each and every rule. Because if you go in and pull out every rule, you'll quickly discover that that rule was put in place for a reason by smart, reasonable people who at the time had a reason for doing it. And they'll come in and they'll argue why they should put it back in and leave it alone. Uh, everyone wants to eliminate the loopholes in the IRS tax code until you actually try to eliminate a loophole in the IRS tax code and then you find out that somebody loves that loophole and somebody put it there for a reason and has lots of people that support it, and it's exactly the same with the NCAA rulebook. We're not going to do that. We're not going to take it apart a piece at a time. We're going to take big swaths of it and start almost whole cloth uh, and redo it. The second piece that goes along with that, then, of course, is we need to change in significant ways, then, the approach we take to our uh, our rulemaking process not excuse me our rulemaking process our rules enforcement process defining the kinds of uh, infractions that we have and i won 't bore you with all the detail of this we can talk about it if you want to but completely changing the the infractions structure from what it is to now which is far too crude and we need we need many more gradations of it we have a two a two uh, infraction model now primaries and secondaries we need probably four at least and and we need something to approaching sentencing guidelines to go along with each of those. And we need to place a clear emphasis on the work of the NCA office on those things that are the major infractions at the end of that scale, the fours, if you will, if it's a four-point scale or ones or whatever end of the scale you're looking at, that are the most egregious, that really affect integrity or student welfare in meaningful ways. The others, we need to shift more of that burden to the institutions and to the conferences and let them manage those affairs. And, and we'll see, I think, a significant, I know we'll see a very significant shift in what we spend our time and attention on in the national office to, to get at some of these issues, including the, the more fundamental problems that deal with mostly the adults in the room, the coaches, administrators, third parties, Agents, uh, folks outside the enterprise that are, that are bringing some really pernicious impacts into, uh, intercollegiate athletics. Those are the people that need to be held accountable as well, not just the institutions themselves. Uh, we all can talk about that more if you want to as well. And then finally, inside this conduct category, we've got two groups working on the nature of resource allocation. Uh, one of those is Mike's committee. Working group. The first, the first one is dealing with the allocation of resources directly to students themselves. We're going to see this week, I'll be asking the board to support a proposal to allow conferences, not mandate anyone, but allow conferences, not individual institutions, to increase the value of a, of an athletic grant and aid to more closely approach the full cost of attendance. Uh, Student-athletes we know have very limited opportunities to work outside the classroom uh, and outside their athletic uh, efforts. Uh, We have had the same basic model of funding student-athletic grants, uh, tuition fees, room board, books and supplies for 40 years. Uh, We are going to create a model that would allow probably, we'll have to see what the proposal is finalized like this week, uh, up to $2,000.00. In addition to those categories, as long as it does not exceed the full cost of attendance at any one school, that number set by those institutions and approved by the federal government, um, as long as it doesn't exceed that number, uh, should a conference decide that it wants to do so? And we have reason to believe a number of conferences will and a number of conferences won't, and that's fine. they They can make those decisions based on how they want to allocate resources. It will probably, that same package will, will also, and I'll ask the board to support the notion of allowing institutions to do multi-year grants if they want to, rather than year-in and year-out grants. Now, there will still be restrictions on student behavior as there is for any scholarship and any grant, um, and those will include, obviously, behavioral requirements and academic requirements, uh, but but faculty. Uh, Coaches will be able to offer students multi-year grants that they would then, of course, honor as multi-year commitments. And then in Mike's committee work group, that working group is looking at the way we allocate resources and whether or not we can free up resources even further for, for supportive student-athletes, et cetera. And this is an area that is um, challenging, I guess, Mike, you would describe it as uh, we know, for example, that the the uh, number of uh, non-coaching staffs in athletic departments is growing, and it grow it's growing very, very rapidly. Well, how do we get our arms around that? How can we constrain that? Uh, every time you look behind a uh, a bench at a football game or a basketball game or a volleyball game, there's increasing numbers of people there that, that aren't coaches, but they're they're doing something, and uh, and the numbers the numbers grow rapidly. Uh, we're looking at the length of the, of the seasons, both regular season and non-traditional seasons and whether or not we can shrink those, both because it has some great academic value potentially and also because it would allow resources to be moved in other places. Uh, we're looking at uh, international travel. Um, institutions are allowed to take teams once every four years on international travel. Does that make sense and does that, is that consistent with uh, the way we want to be using resources? Uh, Mike, I've forgotten others. I'm pretty well hitting them. I guess what I want to leave you with before I stop and then take your questions is the fact that the presidents and I are adamant about making significant changes that will shift uh, the dynamics that are going on in intercollegiate athletics, and we're doing so in rapid order. All of those proposals that I just mentioned and many others that I didn't will not go through our normal legislative cycle. They go right from these working groups straight to the Division I board. Uh, they're getting voted on right then. Uh, we have a terrific proposal coming up this week on bat- men's basketball recruiting. It's something that we've spent nine months working on. It's had participation of coaches and ADs and, and the faculty athletic reps, and it's got great proposal. Uh, in the past, that proposal then would have been turned over to our legislative council. And it would have come back to the board about this time next year, and you wouldn't have been able to recognize the proposal. We're not going to do that. We're taking it right from that group. We're taking it right to the board, and they're going to vote on it. If they don't like it, they can vote it down. If they like it, they're going to vote on it, and it's going to go into effect. Uh, And every one of the things that I just described is going through exactly that process. Every one of those things I just described uh, if I'm back here next year, at this time, will have been acted on one way or another. So with that, Mr. Chairman,
1: okay. uh, I'll pause. Mark, thank you very, very much for those comments. Uh, obviously, your your energy, your commitment, uh, your leadership uh, on this reform agenda are very, uh, very demonstrable. We, we do have uh, a number of issues we'd like to uh, engage you in discussing, and, and maybe I, I'll, I'll start. Uh, I think one of the things that um, has been a a concern to many of us over the last several months is the dance going on with the various conferences and the realignment and the um, havoc that's wreaking uh, on a number of institutions who seem to be left holding the, uh, the bag. You yourself have said that you think uh, there needs to be some way to uh, uh, end this conference panic and have a more uh, thoughtful uh, uh, means of uh, reaching these decisions. I just wonder if uh, what thoughts you may have uh, on, on this issue, and is there some role for the NCAA in uh, this process?
2: Yeah, good, good question. Well, First of all, as everyone knows, the NCA does not have a role in in conference affiliations, and and I uh, agree that the NCA should never be in the business of telling universities what affiliations they should have. Uh, I think that as a university president, I would have have been the first in line to object to that. Uh, Universities and colleges have to make those decisions on their own. Uh, The presidents collectively inside conferences have to make those decisions on their own. Uh, that's not that's not up to the NCAA. What I found troubling about this latest cycle. And, and by the way, I'm also not opposed to schools moving around. I mean, that's that's always occurred. It will always occur. I'm sure I have participated in in uh, those conversations and voted in favor of the Pac-10 becoming the Pac-12 with uh, Elson Floyd of my side. So, uh, you know, I've I've been involved in in uh, these things from pretty much every perspective. The troubling piece was the the um, lack of thoughtfulness in some cases, the um, surprise nature of some of it, um, the lack of good information that many people had in this process, and the cost that it was that it was bringing in collegiality. Uh, every university president here knows that a successful conference is one that can sit around a table and you can trust each other and you can horse trade and you can, Mike Adams and I have had some knockdown dragouts in the SEC. Uh, but we always wound up as good friends and colleagues coming out of that and we all agreed that we would share resources among the haves and the have-nots and a lot of really great work goes on inside those conferences when they're, when they're working really well and it winds up being the core of a lot of the fabric of how collegiate sport works today. Um, when people say that there's not enough revenue sharing, they're wrong. There's a lot of revenue sharing. It goes on inside conferences, um, but not necessarily across the entire bodies in the same way people think. And and so uh, my only hope would be, Britt, that when this cycle uh, pauses for a moment, that we could collectively, and I suspect that means me and the board and commissioners and And others could sit down and say, all right, is there a way we can inject some greater rationality and calmness into the decision-making process? And I don't, you know, an example that came to mind is can we determine that there's got to be a 30-day period during which, um, you know, an institution says, well, we're thinking about moving to Conference X, and we're putting Conference X on notice and our home conference on notice that we're exploring this. And so it's all kind of out in the open and people can have as thoughtful and rational conversations without... Uh, th- th- some of the vitriol, and I mean, there was really a moment last summer where it felt a little bit like Europe in June of 1914, right? With everybody with their hand over a button, or in 1914 it would have been a trigger, and you know, waiting to see what the other guy was going to do. And uh, it, you know, it was it was not it was not uh, the way we would like to do business. We have any anti- real antitrust constraints. You can't you know, coordinate these things in a orchestrated fashion. So it's, it's not a simple—it's not there's not a simple answer there. But anything that would inject a little more calm and rationality into it, I think, would be fine. Other questions?
1: Oh yes, Anita. Oh, is it Val? Yeah, either one. <laughs> one
3: and then the other. Thank you very
1: much, and a very exciting presentation. Uh, Two questions. One,
4: uh, how soon will this, uh, the rule about um, if you don't make the 50% uh, graduation rates, will you forfeit the uh, tournament? That's an important one because that's that's real
1: punishment to bad acting. And then on the other, bad acting and real punishment, um, coaches that, that do bad things and then stay out for a moment or two and then get a better job someplace else. Can there be a way of preventing that? You know, it's like you do
2: a good job here, but you do bad things. Yes. You come back. Uh, well, two important issues. The the 930 APR as a, um, a as an eligibility requirement for postseason play, uh, two things will happen this week. Uh, first, that will be uh, – well, I will ask the board, uh, based on a report coming out of a task force that Harvey Perlman from Nebraska is chairing with Ken Chenault from American Express, for me around around bowl games uh, to change our bowl licensing process because of some of the concerns we had in the this past year about bowl behavior um, it included in that task force that the nine th- report that the nine thirty also be extended to all bowl games so it will also be all football bowl games even though we don't conduct those those events um, it would be extended to eligibility for bowls the the uh, committee on academic performance will recommend and i will encourage the board to adopt a model that will move immediately to a 900 and then a 900 in, in the second year and then go right to the 930 in the third year of implementation so that schools get a you know get a chance to adjust to that um, the even at the 900 level we've had this past year a handful of schools that would not have been eligible for uh participation in our tournaments, including the national champion basketball team. Uh, so it will immediately have an impact, and it will be fully effective in 24 months after that. In terms of the the um, um, second question, I would encourage people to, to um, recognize that this year we've seen something quite extraordinary we've seen a number of very high-profile coaches at very high-profile athletic departments leave their positions as a result of NCAA rules issues. Um, I can't think of another year in which that's happened like this. Paul, um, well, you're the historian. I don't, I, I don't think that's ever happened. I, I think that's a reflection of, of the resolve that we all have around holding the adults in the room accountable also. You saw in the case of one basketball coach, a five-year show cause order that um, holds him accountable uh, for that period of time and and more. Uh, We saw a number of assistant coaches find themselves in similar positions and i don 't speak on behalf of the committee on infractions. They make those decisions quite independent of my involvement as it should be they are they're a, a, the closest thing to a jury of the peers of our peers that we have in intercollegiate athletics and uh, they have made quite clear by their actions that they intend to do this as well so you'll see in the rule changes that occur that are that are underway in the um in the penalty structure that's put in place. Um, and in the in the actions of the committee on infractions, where the where the facts warrant it, a a very very strong tendency toward I'm picking my words very carefully here for a variety of reasons, uh, a very very strong tendency to do just what you describe. We are all disappointed and and sometimes downright disturbed by the specter of. Uh, A a program getting in trouble through violations of our rules and uh, a variety of of issues. They they don't even have to be NCAA issues. Uh, And then moving on to a higher level of success in professional athletics or in in NCAA athletics and leaving behind a lot of carnage and an institution that's suffering a lot of penalties. Uh, We do need to hold institutions responsible because they do make those hires and presidents and ADs, we do make those hires, and we do uh, we are the ones who set the tone for the culture and what will and will not be tolerated, but yes, there are still occasionally people who go outside the bounds of that, misbehave, and they need to be held accountable as well, and we're, and we're moving aggressively in that direction. Long-winded answer, I apologize, but
5: it's complicated. Val? Thanks, Britt. Uh, President Emmert, thanks for your remarks. Um, I just wanted to follow up on on Britt's question about the conference realignment, um, you know, I, I I think it would it would be helpful just to kind of hear your your view on uh, on how to make sense of it. I mean, there's been so much written about it in the last few months. It's clearly gotten emotional reactions out of a lot of people who, um, you know, who, who who can't understand why a team that's been in one conference forever is now moving to another conference. Um, there are critics who've said it's being driven largely by one sport. Um, that plays once a week um, and who worry about the effects, particularly when the conference geographic footprint expands, what that means for athletes in other sports who perhaps play more regularly than once a week and what that would mean for their travel. And and I was just sort of wondering in, in light of all of that, um, you know, how do you synchronize that with your earlier comments about the welfare of the student athlete? and all the great things that you're doing to make sure that those interests are top of mind and at the forefront of of what the NCAA can control because you did mention there are legislative difficulties in managing the decisions that schools make about who they want to partner up with in terms of conference affiliations but it does seem like there are some really important macro issues here and I, I just I find myself asking others and myself is this a good thing or a bad thing maybe it's a little of both but I'm just curious to hear your your take on it from that standpoint
2: well it's a little of both um, and and the um, the weight you know of whether it's better or worse, um, I, I think varies a lot by individual institution and conference. But clearly, the a lot of the movement, the majority of the movement is motivated by um, issues around football and to a lesser extent, men's basketball, which is to say, media markets, right? And uh, participation in the BCS. Because the participation in the BCS... Even if you'll never go play in the BCS, but you are a BCS conference or a BCS member or a BCS automatic qualifier, you know that has become a very, uh, through no one's intention, mind you, uh, it, that's become a, a a status symbol. You know, we do some, uh, we do one thing that's quite odd in American higher education. We do a lot of things that's odd in American higher education. Bearing in mind, this is the best system in the world, so so one shouldn't one should be very careful not to try and throw out babies with bathwaters here, but we have wound up creating athletics in the minds of the public generally as a proxy for status, academic status, which is an odd thing, right? But it's nonetheless true. Uh, I remember once as a young professor saying I was telling my father who who didn't go to college. Uh, Uh, that I was interested in going to a a, a very prestigious university that was offering me a faculty position, he said, huh, I never hear much about them. Well, what he meant was they didn't play Division I football, right? But, you know, my dad was a smart, capable guy, but the two two went together for him. If it's a great school, why don't they play football, Um, or at least better football? Um, And and so BCS status has become important to, to institutions, to alumni, to fan bases, to sheer visibility, participation in a major basketball conference and ability to play in our tournament has become very, very important in a lot of people. And, they, and there's not a president in this room or elsewhere that wants to turn to his or her alumni and say, eh, we're not, we, we gave up on all that. I, should, well, I shouldn't speak for anyone but myself. I know as a university president I sure as heck wouldn't have wanted to do that.
3: So when you see all this landscape moving
2: around, you want to you, you naturally enough want to make sure that you're protecting your institution's interests and and, and those interests are complicated. Right, because there's the interests of the whole university, there's the interest of the alumni and the fan base, there's tradition, there's the student athletes, there's there's money involved. It's not all greed when you say, "Gee, I I, I want to make sure that my athletic department's well funded for the next years." When when Elson and I were sitting around and we were we were realizing that we could get a much better media deal for the Pac-10, we didn't feel greedy. We thought that was a pretty darn good thing because we could continue to support student-athletes and we could continue to do a variety of things that we needed to do while both of our budgets were being slashed uh, like mad. So so I think it's, it's easy to oversimplify it. What you and I, it sounds like, completely agree on is I worry a lot about what it means to have those be the drivers, uh, it, because in reality they are the drivers of conference decisions and what it means to fly the volleyball team literally three-quarters of the way across the country for a Tuesday or a Wednesday night game and then get him back for class the next morning. I mean, that, that's wrong. And, and as presidents and athletic directors make their conference decisions, they have got to take that into consideration. And knowing so many of them as I do, I know, they think, I know, I know it's in the mix. But it's a complicated formula. It is, it is a very difficult dynamic, and uh, um, I don't have simple answers for it because I don't think there are any.
6: Okay, we have uh, Lenny and then Chuck. Well, first of all, Dr. Herman, I'm pretty confident that I speak for my fellow commissioners in commending you and your administration for boldly tackling these, these seminal issues, uh, particularly with the emphasis on the expedited change and reform through this dynamic um, aspect of, of governance. You know, things like the integrity um, in competition and recruiting eligibility, um, certainly in education and leadership development, those things are, to me, are are symphonic. But but what's truly music to my ears is a continued emphasis on student-athlete welfare. And, you know, as you look to utilize this uh, expedited form of change and reform and getting it right as quickly as you possibly can, in this governance model, uh, what would be the best way that student-athletes would be involved in, in helping shape these decisions? I know that, you know, obviously we've seen student-athlete representatives on individual institutional trustee boards, and I'm wondering if that might be uh, a something that, you know, the board of directors might consider as they continue to, to you know, get these ideas right.
2: Yeah, Another good question. First of all, uh, I put students, student-athletes, on every one of the working groups that's working on all of these reforms. So there's students there. They are using through their SAC groups, uh, reaching out to their their colleagues to gather information, just as the AD that's sitting on that that working group does. (coughs) Excuse me. We also, this year, added um, a, a new element to our regular board meetings, and that is that we have regular uh, SAC reports into the board so that we, we bring student-athletes, usually telephonically because they're very busy young men and women, but we w- sometimes in person when they're available, we bring them in. Uh, again, it's much like a Board of Regents model in a university. We bring them in uh, in front of us to report so that we're getting as much Uh, uh, getting more contact directly with student-athletes. And then I've taken it upon myself to spend more time with them, and my senior staff is spending more time with with SAC uh, members and student-athletes across institutions. So I think from where we were, we've ramped up the level of interaction pretty significantly. Uh, Is it where it needs to be? Probably not, but just like in universities, it's always a challenge to get all that, that input in when students are engaged in their busy lives. But it is it is uh, high on my agenda, and we'll keep we'll keep plugging away at it.
7: Chuck, well, I again uh, want to uh, commend you, Mark, for what you've done and, uh, and what you're engaged in at the present time, and I I'm hopeful that uh, all of the things that you are saying will come to pass. Will come to pass. I've I've seen a lot of things uh, fall by the wayside in the past that people worked very hard on. I, I don't think that's going to happen, and I hope not. I have two questions or two comments. One is um, with regard to uh, just a follow-up on Lynn's, Lynn's um, question. In a way, it seems to me one of the things that would uh, be extremely valuable to deal with at the present time is the issue of student likenesses being used by the by others than themselves. Um, we we say to students you can't benefit from that, but we can, and I think. A change in that rule would be very, very helpful at the moment. I think it's something a lot of very thoughtful people have commented on as one of the major problems. You've got a lawsuit coming up at the present time on that. I think that's something that that you might want to put into the into the hopper someplace. Uh, secondly, and this is uh, this is one that's going to get us into getting I'm already into it, so it doesn't matter. It seems to me that one that that. Uh, we have a problem, and we have problems in basketball, which are uh, which go beyond the NCAA's presumed ability to deal with. One is what happens to young people at the age of 10, 11, 12, 13, in, in terms of basketball. That uh, I, I think is uh, is something that needs to be dealt with. But the NCAA has said, well, we can't do that. I think there might be a way, and I'd like to see that looked into. And we have the problem, then, of people coming into the university and spending one year and leaving. And that's, again, something that has to be dealt with, uh, at least in cooperation with the NBA, I suppose. And I hope that that that's something that can be dealt with. But uh, uh, if if we look at the major problems that we've been talking about and and were just raised by by Val, uh, they are problems with football. And there are problems especially that result in, the, well, that are primarily associated, if not exclusively, with the football bowl subdivision. And that means the BCS. And I think what happened when, for a variety of reasons, the NCAA was unable to develop a, a, a football championship and let that go to the BCS, you, 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 you have a bifurcated uh, control over football at the, at the highest level. And much of what's going on is, 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 is a result of that. Is there a way to get football like every other sport, I mean, uh, football, football in the, in the FBS, Back under the control of the NCAA in a way that is true of all other sports.
2: Well, this is an issue, of course, you've spent a lot of lot of time on, and um, and and know the subject every bit as well as I ever will. Um, the, you know, when when um, well, we don't have to do a history lesson here. You know, from '83 on, from the Supreme Court case on um, football revenue has been the purview of of conferences in individual institutions uh, so we've got all those decades of um, of history and tradition there never has been of course a uh, an NCAA uh, FBS championship uh, so there's not any tradition there uh, the um, the probability of that changing is largely up to, you know, the member presidents and whether or not there's an impetus in the FBS, among the FBS membership to go there. My, my stock answer has always been, look, we serve the members, the members want to go there, we know how to run championships, we're more than happy to do it, if that's what they want. And that's still my position, obviously. Uh, and, and it does, you know, the, the current model of of um, the economic landscape does of course place a particular emphasis on football, and so it does wind up becoming a driver because it it makes all the difference in the world to the media markets, and so it it's injected some uh, dysfunctionalities in there in the, in the sense that you're describing. At the same time, it's produced some pretty terrific football uh, for those people that like football and like participating in it. You know, there there are folks that. Really don't like the bowl system. The current bowl structure that we have is not really a system. Just, you know, we have 30 bowls or whatever. We have 35 bowls. Um, The one people I know that don't dislike it are kids. I've never talked to a kid that walked off the field of a bowl game and said, gee, I wish I hadn't gone there. You know, the, there's nothing more fun for our football players than to go play in a bowl game. It doesn't matter how distinguished it is. It could be the Rose Bowl. It could be the lowest-ranked bowl. They went to a bowl game. They played. They had a great time. I, I, I've never heard one say, gosh, please eliminate the bowls. So, I mean, it, it, it really does work in some ways, Chuck, and at the same time it injects, as you again, as you nicely articulated, some dysfunctionalities that are problematic. We have so did I? Did I not answer your question uh, as effectively as I could?
7: I think you answered it about as effectively as I would have expected. <laughs> I, I, I,
3: not,
7: not, not because of you, but because of the because of the issue. Because of the issue. But what about the what about the the the, the question of the use of student images?
2: Oh, well, obviously I can't talk about some of that specifically because, as you know, we have, we have this. Court case pending uh, let me so let me talk about it very quickly if I might mr. chairman uh, uh, philosophically, and that is that i I am adamantly opposed to linkages of pay and play, so whether or not an institution or an organization uses an image is, is one thing whether or not we uh, convert that into a, uh, a, a money-making enterprise for student athletes is a, a whole different question. I, I have spent a lot of time talking to a lot of people, thinking through, th- thinking this through many, many different ways, this past year. And and when we move to professionalize our student athletes, uh, in my opinion, we're just thrown in the towel. And and I don't. I don't know where that takes us other than down a very, very bad road. And I know, I know there's strong arguments to be made in disagreement with that, but, uh, but I'm really adamantly convinced of it.
7: My concern is not. That's not my concern. I mean, I, I, have, I think one can divide what happens with student-athletes and former student-athletes. But um, my concern is that we say the students can't benefit from it, but the universities can't. And, uh, and and other entities can, and I think we sh- we can say you can't use student athletes in that way. That's using student athletes. It's abusing student athletes, and I think it's something that ought not to be. Done. I I get your point. Okay, we
1: have uh, Carol, and then Bill, and then Sarah.
4: I want to go back, uh, Mark, to the beginning of this conversation with you, and thank you very much for bringing us a sense of resolve and and urgency and for being very candid with us. Uh, It seems to me that every once in a while there's an issue that comes along that can be transformative in terms of being very clear about a commitment to change. And in my view, one of those that you've laid out that you have under serious discussion is the academic eligibility for postseason competition. It would seem to me that nobody needs to prepare for this. This has been under discussion for more than a decade as what we need to move to if we're serious about academic reform. So I'm curious about um, why wait to 2014 to get there? Well, first of all, um, the proposal that will be
2: voted on this week doesn't uh, wait to put in place for the first time an, an, an immediate eligibility requirement for participation. It sets it at 900. Now remember, there's nothing now. And so it would say, first year you hit a 900 in your, in your APR, below, you miss a 900, you will not play in any tournaments. Uh, so it, it would immediately take effect. The, the issue is that you have, so, well let me give you a few scenarios. It's not unrelated to the question about a, a, a coach. So you have a coach, he comes in, let's, uh, let's say basketball because the numbers are, are small, and this coach recruits some really good kids, uh, takes them to the Sweet 16 or the Elite 8, uh, gets a great job, moves on to the next institution, and their APR is 850. Okay? On a four-year rolling average, now you bring in a new coach, and he's got to go recruit a team. And he has to tell all his recruits, oh, by the way, we won't be in the tournament for the next three years because of what happened the three years ahead of time. Um, and and so every coach is out there recruiting against and saying, well, yeah, you can go to that school over there, but, you know, you, you won't play in the tournament. Even if you're a straight-A student, you won't get to play in the tournament. You understand that. And, and, and so it makes change hard under some circumstances. So we, we want to provide a model that rewards effort and at the same time puts a, a serious threshold out there and if we don't have some time for uh, uh, movement to get everybody up there, now the vast majority of teams are, are, are at this level or, or not or, 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 or above right now. And so, so we most schools will, won't notice this, right? And that's what we want because they're above 50%. Uh, but to move the dial, as you well know, uh, on, on those measures in 24 months is actually pretty bloody good. And and so I feel I feel fine about it if that's where the board winds up. If if they just said they want to go to 9:30 right now, fine. But there'd have been a lot of collateral damage, and that might have been okay. But um, it 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 would have been you know if they do do that, it, it will cause a lot of dislocation. So we're trying to get people there, reward them for the right behavior, but still get them there fast. That that's the that's why Cap came up with that with that model.
1: We're now into overtime. I'm ah, No, uh, well, no, that's not your fault. So, uh, But uh, Bill uh, and um, Sarah, if you could have a, a, a quick question, Just, we'll accommodate this, this, them.
2: This is very quick. I want to commend you for your comments and, uh, and speed in and ex- expediting what uh, looks like a, a very
6: transformative um, uh, set of uh, activities. Just a question for myself. Some of my colleagues around the table, maybe most, Understand how the NCA board of directors structure works and the voting power that exists there with the conference realignments taking place. Some suggesting that there might be four super conferences later. How would that affect the board of directors uh, structure? Well,
2: under its current structure, I think Mike Adams maybe set it up, but under its current structure, uh, didn't you? No. All right. Maybe it was Britt. I don't know. Carol Carol was there, too. I mean, you got all the people that built it sitting around this table. Yeah. Carol, you had a hand in that, too, I think. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it was her structure. Uh, But in any event, uh, under the current structure, it is is possible that uh, it, it could change some of the membership, first of all. So uh, Harvey Perlman was a member from uh, the Big Twelve. Well, he's in the Big Ten now. So Harvey Perlman can't be a member. So you have to. So you wind up with some people changing um, places, right? Because of all of that. If there were a, a, a very very large scale change in the number of conferences, like you're describing, sure, you'd have to go back and you'd have to rethink all of that. I don't personally see the. the the four super conferences is an invention of the media, as far as I can tell. It doesn't make sense in all kinds of reasons. But, uh, but wh- whatever you wind up with, um, it, could, it could potentially change the structure. Because we use conferences as, as basically the representative bodies, right? In a federalist model, they're essentially the states. So you change the number of states you change, and the size of the population of the states, you change your voting pot- pattern. Sarah, last question.
3: Um, thank you very much for your comments. And just to sort of echo what Len has said about um, emphasizing student-athlete welfare, um, it's great to hear that there's a renewed focus on that. Uh, being the most recent college graduate and a former student-athlete, um, I think I just have one question, and that's in light of everything that's happened over the summer and, and sort of a lot of the, the flurry of media media articles about paying student-athletes and knowing your stance as well as the commission stance of maintaining the collegiate model, um, if I heard you correctly, there are two things in terms of resource resource allocation, as well as the financial implications for student athletes about covering the cost of attendance in a scholarship and also being able to have multi-year scholarships, um, that it sounded as if you were gonna leave that to the conference. And I can't necessarily claim to know all the finances and all the decisions that are made in that process, um, but I am wondering sort of, and I do know obviously that there are a lot of financial disparities between conferences as we saw with the slide, the SEC, the PAC 12, et cetera. Um, but I do wonder why that decision has been made to, to put that to the conferences, um, as opposed to maybe having an NCAA stance on having more than, a, more than the one-year renewable uh, scholarship or even the idea of covering the cost of atten- attendance. If the SEC is doing it and the other conference is not doing it, um, are, are we then sort of pseudo-paying student-athletes in this respective con- conference and not in the other
2: yeah well again let me emphasize very strongly that that uh the full cost of attendance issue has gotten confused in some people's minds with paying student athletes and it is unequivocally not that um and uh, and, and when it's referred to it that way it, it it's um disappointing i guess no, I didn't mean your comment, I meant that, that, it, that I've, I've read that in the media, that, oh, they're going to pay students $2,000. Well, that's nonsense, but it makes good copy, I guess. So uh, the, the reason that we wanted to leave it up to the conferences and the reason that the, the committee is going in that direction is that it, this was a, and remains, a very controversial issue because of cost. Uh, among the, the conferences in the BCS, for example, I would anticipate that virtually all of them adopt this right away because they have a revenue stream and resources that can do it. Certainly the the six automatic qualifier BCS conferences will move in that direction, I'm sure. Uh, Probably many more will as well. Not necessarily all of them because it gets expensive. Will, Will schools underneath that? You know, I don't know. And so you don't want to put a... A, a conference or a school in a position with a mandatory expense that the only way they can pay for it is to cut scholarships, so you may have students getting in some of those conferences you you could find yourself in a position where they have to drop a sport or shrink the number of awards that uh, you know because they want to to move to the two thousand model or, or are d- mandated so it's a it 's clearly a compromise like so many of these things are um, and and that 's what we're really try to do is get the principle in place. Uh, I think the majority of schools of conferences will move in that direction. Um, and then we can go from there. It's like with the number 2000. So you could that number could have been higher. Uh, but there's some strong arguments for why it ought to be where it is, at least to begin with. And then we'll see where we can go from there. So I guess it, we'll take the two steps in the right direction and then see if we can go further next.
1: Mark, on on behalf of the commission, I just uh, want to again express our great uh, admiration for the leadership you're providing to the NCAA at this very critical uh, juncture. And we cannot thank you enough for taking time to be with us today and having this dialogue. Thank
2: Thank you. (laughs) Thank you.
1: Thank you. We're going to take a 10-minute break.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. For more information on the Knight Commission, please visit www.knightcommission.org.